Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of True Blue Crime Podcast. As always, I am Dan, and I will be your host for this episode. Today is the first international episode for True Blue Crime Podcast, and for this episode, we're going back to a country where I spent three and a half years as a child. The country is Australia. A lot of people wonder how a kid from Minnesota ended up living in Australia for three and a half years. Well, the quick version of the story is my father's company needed someone to work with the Australian government for a project, and my father had experience working in Australia uh, with the Air Force during Vietnam. So he somehow was able to get my mother to agree to move myself, and I was two, my sister who was four, down to Australia and eventually they would actually have my brother in Australia. So crazy as it is, I went to kindergarten and first grade while I was in Australia and then moved back to America. I was lucky enough to go back in 2016 on a two-week trip where I explored Australia's east coast and met up with some childhood friends and had an absolute blast. So I'm hoping I get to go back again soon, but as for today, we're just going to explore a rather interesting case, uh, a well-known case out of Australia. But before we get to the podcast, we'll get through the business here. If you haven't already done so, check out the previous versions of True Blue Crime on all podcast platforms. You may see an older version of True Blue Crime, which is actually out of Australia. Uh, that is not uh, related to my podcast, but if you could uh, check out my Facebook page at True Blue Crime Productions or check out the website at www.truebluecrimeproductions.com. And finally, if you could support me on Patreon, I greatly appreciate any and all contributions to the Patreon site so I can keep putting out these podcasts. And as of a special note today, I just reached what I believe to be my 200th download, and that was under week one, and I was hoping to hit that by the end of the first month. So you guys are awesome. I got a bunch of people who have listened to every single episode that I put out, and that warms my heart and makes me want to keep making more episodes, so I appreciate that. But without any further ado, let's get into this. It's a big case, so I got a lot to cover, and uh, let's get going. So this is going to be the case of Tina Watson. It's going to be an international case, as I mentioned, with a lot of government involvement between America and the government of Queensland, Australia. Now, if you're not familiar, Australia has several states to it, uh, just like the United States. And these are large, for the most part, large areas of land that are encompass each of these states. The state we'll be talking about is Queensland. So if you look at a map of Australia, this is the upper right portion of Australia, so the northeast portion on a map. And it's going to cover areas like Darwin, Cairns, Brisbane, and most notably it's known for the Great Barrier Reef and the Coral Sea. So the date of this incident is going to be on October 22nd of 2003. So we are approaching the 20-year anniversary of this case. And the location of the crime is going to be on a wreck of the SS Yangala. And since I get curious when I research these cases, I wanted to know what the wreck of the SS Yangala was. So the Yangala was a passenger steam ship that sunk during a cyclone in 1911. So 
This steamship was known for carrying passengers up and down the east coast of Australia. So people would, in days before airline travel and spotty train travel, I guess, at this time, they could load onto a, sh a steamship like this and they would travel cruise style from Melbourne up to uh, the Great Barrier Reef area up to Darwin and then back down. They had first class passenger cabins, regular passenger cabins, a lot of crew, and the, the ship could also haul out of cargo. So it was kind of a dual purpose ship. Unfortunately, in 1911, as it's heading up the uh, east coast, as it's leaving the air, uh, an area in the Great Barrier Reef, it misses uh, some flags that were set out to warn about an uh, impending cyclone which is basically to most people from the northern hemisphere considered a hurricane, but the southern hemisphere is considered a cyclone, and it misses this, this storm warning. And unfortunately, it was also due in a matter of months to receive a wireless telegraph system that could warn uh, ships of things like these storms, uh, but it had not arrived yet, so it the ship did not have the capabilities. As a result, the ship sailed straight into the cyclone and unfortunately all 112 passengers and crew were lost as the ship sunk. Now the, sh the actual location of the shipwreck itself was a mystery for about 30 years until it was discovered in World War II when a minesweeper followed upon it at a depth of 24 meters or roughly 80 feet so this is a portion of the coral sea and during world war ii the coral sea was an area that did see uh, battles between the uh, japanese forces and the allies so this minesweeper was likely traveling an area in which mines would have been dropped to disrupt shipping lanes and whatnot and instead of finding a mine the minesweeper notes that it has some anomaly a large anomaly at this location and after World War II, it's a matter of a few years, a survey ship is sent out to figure out what this large anomaly is, and it's identified as the SS Yangala. Now, despite the tragic sinking and loss of life around the Yangala, the positive side is, as it's been sitting on the ocean floor for more than 100 years now, a natural reef has formed at this location that is full of diverse marine life and it's a very popular dive site. The ship itself was actually rather large. It's 350 feet long, and although it sits at an ocean depth of roughly 80 to 90 feet, the size of the ship itself means that divers actually reach it around 40 or 50 feet, so this is kind of a perfect area for recreational divers to, to get down and, and see the, the wreck itself and the marine life that live in and around the wreck. The site is so popular it boasts about 10,000 visitors a year and there's so many ships that come out here to do dive expeditions. They actually have permanent moorings on the ocean floor because the anchors were doing too much damage. So it's not uncommon to have several ships anchored out there for daily diving uh, excursions all throughout the year. So on October 22nd of 2003 it's spring in Queensland Australia so the average temperature air temperature is about highs of 82 and lows of around 70 and the average water temperature matches that around 83 degrees so 
for the Australian and New Zealand listeners I have now, or non, uh, or the sorry, the metric listeners I have now in all the countries, it's uh, we're talking 28 degrees Celsius for highs, 21 degrees Celsius for lows, and 28 degrees Celsius water. So, dang near perfect in my opinion. At 10:30 in the morning during an excursion on the dive boat Spoil Sport, Tina Watson loses consciousness and her body comes to rest at the bottom of the ocean at a depth of around 98 feet or 30 meters. Shortly upon entering the water, her and her husband had resurfaced and the husband, Gabe Watson, said he was having problems with his dive computer. Something about the battery being in backwards and he needed to fix it before attempting the dive again. Then two minutes into the dive, her and her husband, Gabe, which I read two minutes and I also read four to five minutes and based on descent I would believe it'd probably be more in the four to five minute range but I think that was one of the statements at two minutes but we'll go with somewhere around I would say five minutes into this dive her husband Gabe would later state that the currents were stronger than they expected and that Tina had requested to return to the dive rope so for those not familiar with diving uh, scuba diving uh, especially at sites like this, they'll often have a descent rope, and in this case, because the current will blow you across the ship, across the reef that you're looking at, and you have minimal exertion and swimming then, you're just kind of going with the flow of the water, on the other side of the ship would be an ascent rope. And you follow these ropes down and then back up to the ship, and it creates a safe environment for the divers to get down to depth and see the reef and then and then return to the surface now when diving it's you're always going to dive with the dive buddy you never dive alone so the dive buddy is there they have supplemental oxygen for you they have a, a second regulator they can give you in case your oxygen runs out or you run into some type of a leak or or issue with either your oxygen or your regulator uh, they're there in case you have some type of a medical emergency or for some reason have issues moving around in the water basically it's somebody with you so that if you have a problem uh, they can help you and so Gabe and Tina are going to be each other's dive buddies on this day and when Tina's having issues with this current according to one of Gabe's statements he said that she wanted to go back to the descent rope at which point they likely would have tried to go back up the, I think they're about 40 or 50 feet down, go back up to the boat and abort the dive. However, Gabe would later say that a look of worry comes across Tina's face and she accidentally knocks his mask and regulator loose from his face. When he recovers this, and there's a way while scuba diving to clear the uh, water from your mask and, and reacquire your oxygen with your regulator it's a, it's a short process but it can be done and he claims after he does this Tina's sinking away from him down towards the, the the ocean floor and it was too far for him to get to and there was talk later of this ear condition he mentioned an ear condition although in the research I couldn't find later on what ear condition was preventing him from diving now you do have to as you dive kind of release the pressure in your ears as you go down and so I don't know if it was an issue where he had not been able to release pressure out of his ears and so he felt uncomfortable diving deeper down 
he makes the decision then to swim to the surface for help. Now, other divers would state that they saw Gabe and Tina engaged in a bear hug while, while Tina was flailing, after which he headed to the surface and Tina sank to the bottom. So we're getting some different accounts between Gabe's version of events and some witnesses. What we do know is there is a famous picture of a woman scuba diving on this trip. This was taken by her husband, Gary Stempler. And the picture itself actually shows Tina on the ocean floor behind, or in the background of this photo. She's kind of on her uh, back, the tanks on, on the ocean floor and her arms up in the air. And unfortunately, this makes its rounds on the internet under a lot of different moments of death sites or, or slideshows or whatever it may be. But this is back in 2003 and Stempler was not using a digital camera. He was using a underwater film camera. So he's actually not going to even see this photo for a few weeks after the dive when he gets his film developed. He's looking through and, and sees this Tina Watson in the background of this of this photo. What we do know is that Gabe does surface and he notifies the dive instructor, uh, Wade Singleton, on board the Spoil Sport that Tina has sunk to the bottom and needs to be rescued. A rescue dive was completed and Tina was brought to the surface approximately 10 minutes after she went to the ocean floor. Based on where this rope was, it was actually closer to a dive boat called the Jazz 2 when they surfaced. And a lot of the times these large boats, a lot of them are, are catamarans or different large dive boat they're not going to park directly on top of the site. They're going to anchor off-site and then use these small motor boats to bring the divers out to the, the dive site itself. So likely this, this rope that was attached to a buoy that served as the descent line was, it just happened to be either there was a, a small boat from the Jazz there or the Jazz 2, or sorry, the Jazz 2 happened to be cl the closest boat. So they boat over to this Jazz 2 with Tina's body. There's a doctor on board uh, happened to be visiting um, and, and doing a, a dive tour that day. So he attempts for about 40 minutes to resuscitate Tina, but ultimately all rescue uh, resuscitation fails and she's pronounced dead. Now, her body is taken ashore. The following day, an autopsy was conducted. The evidence suggests suggest drowning as the cause of death, which makes sense as witnesses, including her husband, saw her struggle underwater and then fall to the ocean floor. However, this is where the investigation is really going to begin. But first, let's look at who were the Watsons. We haven't really explained who they are, and that was kind of the point. I wanted to get the story out first, and then I'll kind of break down who, who they are and, and how they came to be on this dive. So, Tina was actually born in West Germany in 1977 and came to America while still a baby. And she was adopted about three, or sorry, two weeks before her third birthday. She grew up in Walker County, Alabama, and she ends up meeting Gabe as they're both attending the University of Alabama in 2001. Now, Gabe is described as athletic and outgoing. He was born on 3-5 of 77, so he's actually uh, about a month younger than Tina. And he's taken many scuba courses, including a rescue diver course. And he's completed 55 dives, and some of them in what was 
called open water, but I think in reality, later on in the research, it says that these were these were quarry or lake dives, which it's not the same as a pool dive, but it's definitely not the same as an ocean dive. Now, Tina had just completed her scuba certification shortly before the trip, so she's taken her minimum uh, five confined water dives to get her most basic certification. So she's dove five times basically in a pool or a uh, large unmoving body of water with clear visibility. So these are the, mo the safest and, and most beginner type dives that anyone can do. If there's a problem, you're close to the surface, there's no current to deal with or anything like that. So she completes this, gets her basic dive certification that she's able to bring along with her as they're now, uh, they've been married in uh, early, uh, or sorry, in mid-October of 2003 and they head down to Australia for their honeymoon. Now, as police begin to investigate this incident, um, they're going to start to become skeptical of Gabe from the very beginning. And this happens mainly because of his actions at the, at the time of the emergency. And then eventually he's going to give what prosecutors describe as 16 different accounts of what happened. Now, this falls back to the idea that oftentimes if somebody's going to tell you the truth they will tell you the same version of the truth 16 times in a row and nothing will be different however if somebody's trying to hide the truth or lie they might take 16 different attempts to try to tell you the same story and never get one the same because they're not remembering things they're making them up and they forget what they made up you don't forget something that that truly happened at least not to the same degree as, as stuff that you make up. So police are going to question this. They're also going to question his behavior immediately uh, or at the time of the emergency and then immediate, immediately after. So he's going to come onto this, this dive boat and tell everybody that he's completed all these dives, that he's a certified rescue diver, and that's going to make him the perfect dive buddy. In fact, if you look at the PADI, who's the... Um, governing body of scuba diving if you look at their website about the rescue diver course the first thing it says is it makes you a better dive buddy so if he's attended this course he should be the best person to be down there with tina and tina's actually probably the worst dive buddy for gabe but when tina has this supposed emergency underwater gabe decides his best course of action instead of providing some type of an emergency save to his dive buddy was to head to the surface and get help, which he knows is going to delay any efforts to get her help because it's going to take somebody some time to put on dive equipment or dive gear and make the dive down the 98 feet to where the body is and then reascend with that body. So it's kind of a built-in time before any resuscitation can be made based on the decision that he made. Also, after his uh, after Tina's body's brought back up from the seafloor and resuscitation attempts are being made, he is given several opportunities to get onto a, a small boat to go over to the Jazz 2, because remember, he surfaced back at the spoil sport to tell the dive instructor that he knew there that, T uh, that his wife needed help. So he's on the spoil sport while Tina is on another boat, I'm assuming within 
visible range, but uh, he denies or he turns down all offers to go over to his to his wife. And this is where I read several different accounts in the research. One said it's because he thought his wife would be fine because he thought she would just have a headache to all the way to he knew she was deceased and he didn't want to see her. So it's kind of all over the board. I think some of that comes into play the 16 different accounts and police are going to going to get witness statements from people on this boat and apparently he was walking around asking people for hugs because his wife had died and this is when resuscitation attempts are still going on so again it's it's just odd behavior and now one thing that i will agree with many other true crime podcasts is that you can never expect someone to act a certain way when a close or when a person very close to them dies the reactions are all over the board some people are emotionless and that looks suspicious and some people fly off the handle and that looks suspicious some people get angry some people cry and can't stop crying you know like the reactions are all over the board so there is no right or wrong way for somebody to react when they know that a loved one is deceased however in this case it's more of a combination of his behaviors that made police question what exactly was going on here so a few days after the incident he's going to approach police and say that he thinks the current of the ocean and the la- uh, at, at the dive site and a lack of warning from the crew about the said the current was to blame he said when they descended when Tina and him descended and they let go of the uh, rope they realized very quickly that the current was stronger than they expected and it was and he felt it was too dangerous to swim with the current across to the ascent rope and so Tina wanted to return to the rope they had just left which meant swimming against the current which is something that's very difficult to do and she be, quickly became tired and that's when he believes Tina freaked out and tried to grab at his face now the one thing I will say is I spent a summer as a lifeguard and the one thing they they train you on that is if anybody is ever underwater and either feels like they're going to drown or just that panic sets in it's the panic is 10 times worse underwater so it is not uncommon for people who are drowning or fear feeling like they're going to drown to go into just absolute preservation mode which means they will grab at things and and act completely out of control and often at the risk of whoever's trying to rescue them so the story does somewhat make sense that if she's feeling like she's not going to be able to make it back to this rope and this current is going to suck her away out into the ocean and she just completely goes into a panic attack mode she could have grabbed at Gabe's mask and regulator and just sheer panic and then when while he's adjusting that again she's now reached the point where she's just completely exhausted and her body falls to the ocean floor so i'm not saying it's out of the realm of possibility however there are some witnesses on this dive that do see something strange as they're diving and what they describe is seeing gabe and 
Tina in what they described as a bear hug. And then suddenly Tina falls away and Gabe ascends to the surface. So this is this is completely opposite of what Gabe is saying, where they're they're not in any contact with each other because he's trying to fix his god or his mask and regulator. And by the time he does, she's floating away from him. So maybe the truth is somewhere in between, or maybe you know one party's seeing it differently, or maybe Gabe is lying. So there's there's going to be a lot of it could be this or it could be that in this episode. There's not a lot of black and white there are a few situations where black and white but a lot of this episode is is gray area that you just kind of have to believe one side or believe the other and and then make and formulate your own opinion in the end now despite gabe's claims a few days later that he had no idea how strong the currents would be at this site this is going to later be refuted by emails found by the Queensland investigators that show he was communicating with the crew of the spoil sport well before they ever arrived for their honeymoon. Basically, from the sounds of it, when he was looking at different dive sites or companies that would take him to different dive sites, he put out an inquiry to the crew of the spoil sport, basically asking what are the dive conditions like at SS uh, Yangala. And he's advised that the conditions are, you know, can have strong currents and it's for experienced divers only. He mentions that Tina has only just basically completed her super certification, has never dove in open water before. And they advise that she should either do an orientation dive or not dive at all. And according to the records she didn't do the orientation dive and clearly she did dive the site so Gabe may be telling the police that he wasn't aware of of any conditions at the site but this email contradicts that strongly this is one of those not gray areas this this definitely seems like it's black and white another point that was a little strange was so when they were diving on the site I mentioned that Gabe's dive computer wasn't working properly. Gabe is wearing a dive computer, which calculates a lot, a lot of different things for the dive. Uh, mainly, or I should say, most importantly, it's the amount of oxygen remaining, and then your ascent and descent rates. It keeps track of that so that you don't ascend or descend too fast and have issues with gas bubbles and the condition of the bends. So they want to look at his dive computer because that is going to show his ascent rate because he is going to claim that as soon as he, as soon as Tina's body starts to float towards the ocean floor, he swims as absolutely fast as he can to get to the surface. Now remember, he's by his own account and by the fact that this wreck starts around 50 feet off, off the ocean floor, they're at 50 feet deep. So he's got to clear you know 50 feet of vertical water ahead of him and according to his dive computer, it took something like three minutes for him to do this. Now, I'm no expert on swimming, but I do know scuba divers also have buoyancy control vests that they can inflate, and they have weight belts that they can drop if they need to ascend faster. Now, ascending fast is never a good idea because that's how you get the bends, but usually it has to occur at depths slightly greater than 50 feet, and if they were down closer to 100 feet at the time, I could understand him not wanting to risk incapacitating himself 
in order to get his wife help, but at the depth that he was at, he should have been able to swim to the top with minimal risk, but maximum reward if you're talking about getting help as fast as you can in faster than three minutes. It was said that when police asked for his dive computer, he was extremely upset that they were going to take it and, and look at the, at the information in it, and then was even more mad when they would not return it to him, saying it was evidence. So basically what is going to happen in Australia and other Commonwealth or former Commonwealth countries is what's called a coronial inquiry. And now these don't exist in, in America, at least not in this form. It's mainly something you're going to see in uh, the UK, Australia, New Zealand, um, places like that. And what this is, it's is from what I can understand, it's a judge who has medical experience, a, a coroner's license, that will investigate deaths to, to determine the cause of deaths. Now, in a lot of cases, this is a very simple process. But in cases of murders or questionable suicides or anything along those lines, this is almost in a way a mini trial. And it most closely resembles, from what I can tell, a grand jury would look like in, in America. Although a grand jury in America can be for non-death related cases, and this is specifically related to death uh, cases involving death. So basically, it's going to be this formal process to determine a cause of death. And if a cause of death is determined to be criminal, then they're going to recommend prosecution uh, seek charges. And the, uh, the judge in this case can call witnesses to the stand to ask questions. And these could be expert witnesses. It can be, you know, just witnesses to the death itself. However, the suspect cannot defend themselves. And this is very similar to a, to a grand jury in America, is that there's no objections by the defense, there's no anything along those lines. This is purely designed to be a fact-finding uh, endeavor, and it's not designed to be an adversarial system of, of arguing points, and it's just supposed to be the judge is supposed to use it to, to find as much information about the case so that he or she can make a ruling. Gabe himself would not return for the, uh, the coronial inquest. However, his through his lawyers, he would offer up evidence or answer questions for the judge. Now, based on all the information the police are going to discover during their investigation, mainly what the police did in this case was they sent two divers down in the water and then a third with a video camera and they tried to replicate as many different scenarios as they could of how Gabe described what happened between him and Tina and they could never get the outcome to match any of Gabe's stories however when they decided to create different scenarios the one that stuck out far above everything else was if one diver grabbed the other diver and shut off the oxygen to the regulator, knowing that this would eventually cause that diver to go unconscious and then turn back on the oxygen on the regulator so it looked like they were getting oxygen the whole time, 
the other diver would then sink to the floor. And this was accomplished by one diver uh, doing a bear hug of the other diver. So police are going to use this as the smoking gun saying, this is what witnesses saw and this is what Gabe did to Tina. And as a result, the judge is going to find that Tina's death was a murder and the suspect was her husband, Gabe. Another thing that's going to be brought up at this coronial inquest is that Tina's father is going to tell uh, the judge that before Tina's death, Tina approached him telling him that Gabe wanted her to increase her life insurance fivefold before the, the trip. Now, Tina never actually did this. Her father just remembered her telling him this and because in his mind it seemed so ludicrous that she would do this. She was 26 years old and he didn't see any reason why she should need to increase her life insurance in such a way. Now, while this uh, coronial inquest is going on, Gabe is actually involved in some of his own legal action back in Alabama. He is going to sue the travel insurance company because prior to setting out on this honeymoon, they purchased travel insurance. And basically, travel insurance is a way to recoup losses if you buy tickets and book hotels and all this kind of stuff, and then something happens whether it be an act of God, weather that prevents you from partaking in the, in the trip or a medical or something along those lines, uh, you can recoup some or all of your losses with this travel insurance. Well, the travel insurance company doesn't want to pay out because they believe that Gabe is responsible for the death, therefore negating his travel insurance. So he had, and he sued for the it was a forty five thousand dollar policy he took out, and then he sued on top of that for an undisclosed amount of damages, which included the trip interruption, medical expenses, long distance phone calls to his family, lawyers, taxi fares, and even credit card fees. Now this lawsuit would be dismissed because his lawyers are actually his lawyers in Australia are actually going to tell him that. In any civil case, he is going to be subpoenaed by the travel insurance company's lawyers, and he is required by law to answer their questions. And he is not protected by the Fifth Amendment in this case, as he's the one bringing the lawsuit forward. So anything he says and is forced to say in this civil litigation lawsuit could actually be used against him in a court of law. So he ends up dropping the lawsuit, but he does state during this lawsuit or after he drops the lawsuit that he's not going to go back to Australia voluntarily. So meanwhile in Australia, the coronial inquest is determined that Gabe murdered his wife and he resists returning to Australia for six months and he's fighting the extradition. So when a foreign country wants somebody back for committing a crime in their country, there's laws about forcing somebody to leave their home country to come back and face charges. He's fighting this, this extradition for six months. However, during the six months, his legal team is actually going to be meeting with Queensland prosecutors to try to come up with some type of a plea agreement. And eventually it's going to be announced that he is going to plead guilty to manslaughter 
and receive a four-year sentence, but he would only serve 12 months of this. Now, he's going to agree to a manslaughter case because he admits he cannot deny the fact that as a dive buddy, he failed to provide simple emergency aid to his dive buddy, who is his wife, Tina Watson. So basically he's saying there's no way that he could ever win a criminal court case that was charging with manslaughter. So he was willing to plead to that, but he was only willing to do a four-year sentence of which he would only serve a one year in jail. Now this is going to make a lot of people mad and that's going to include the investigators in Queensland, the attorney general in Queensland, and the and Tina's family, as well as the attorney general in Alabama. So the attorney general of Alabama, who was at the time a gentleman by the name of Troy King, he writes this official appeal to the Queensland's Queensland Supreme Court and the Queensland Attorney General, a man identified as Cameron Dick, advising that there should be an appeal of the sentence because it is grossly shy of any type of real punishment for what Gabe did. This letter is actually going to be leaked into the Australian media because this is this case becomes kind of a, a media circus in uh, Queensland and all across Australia, and and actually it was it became a case popular in America and around the world. So the director of public prosecutions in Queensland is going to issue a statement. I got the statement right off Wikipedia. The statement reads verbatim: "The decision to accept Mr. Watson's plea of guilty to manslaughter was made after a careful and thorough examination of the admissible evidence, and was not taken lightly. Given the complex circumstantial nature of the case, Mr. Watson's admission that he breached his duty to render assistance to his wife ultimately meant there was no reasonable prospect of proving beyond a reasonable doubt that he was guilty of murder." We're going to cover some stuff later on in regards to what's going on in the Queensland prosecution office at this point, but to me this is just one of those form letters that the prosecutor is sending out saying they just don't believe they have enough to charge him with murder, even though the police and several other people are saying they believe they do. The Queensland Attorney General is actually going to issue an appeal against the inadequacy of the sentence, and that's going to occur on June 18th. And then, so on July 17th, the appeal is actually heard. And so there's three members of this appeal board that are going to hear arguments both for and against the sentence of 12 months being inadequate. The Queensland Attorney General is going to ask for a minimum of 2.5 years. Gabe's defense, of course, is going to argue that the 12 months he's facing is, is a fair sentence. So on a two-to-one vote, the appeal board agrees to increase the sentence by six months. So Gabe is now going to serve 18 months. The one vote that did not agree to the six-month increase actually wanted to dismiss the appeal altogether.
So while all this is going on over in Australia, there's actually going to be several issues with Tina's burial herself. So Tina's body was brought back and buried in Alabama by her family. Now, again, I think from wedding date to her death was 11 days. So by legal standards, Gabe is her next of kin because they're married. But the family is going to be arguing all along that she's been in their family for 23 years and she was adopted right before she was three but she's been in the family for 23 years he's only been her next of kin for 11 days and they believe that he had a hand in her death so they're able to get the body back to alabama and and get and have her buried and i didn't get an exact date on this but i assume it was in 2003 however in 2007 her remains are going to be exhumed and brought to a different uh, site by Gabe so unfortunately because he's next to Ken he's able to do this he's also the executor on her estate so the family doesn't really have any recourse but they know where this grave is so they're going to go to the grave on a regular basis and place down flowers and gifts and all, all kinds of stuff on the grave however they're going to notice that these flowers and gifts keep disappearing so they think it's kids or vandals or, or, or other cemetery guests taking the items and putting them on other graves or whatever it may be. So they chain down these uh, arrangements and gifts and that kind of stuff to uh, the site. However, they uh, uh, continue to go missing. So the police are going to set up a surveillance video watching the grave and they're actually going to catch Gabe Watson coming to the gravesite and using bolt cutters to remove these items and throw them in the trash. Now when asked by police, he's going to say that he thought the arrangements were too big and gaudy and plastic and, and not not what he wanted on his wife's gravesite. But this is obviously not going to sit well with uh, Tina's family or the general public. Gabe wouldn't even mark her grave until 2009. So he has her buried there in 2007, but it's just a grass plot until he gets a small foot marker there. And I'm guessing there was some type of, you know, off the record agreement or talking between Gabe and the family at this point, and they're, they're requesting that he actually marks the grave because I'm assuming they had a gravestone and everything on her first grave. And he took the body from that grave and put it into this one where there is no marker, there is no gravestone, there is nothing. So when he finally gets this small little foot marker, the family feels like it's a slap in the face. And, and this is when they go to court and sue to become executors of her of Tina's estate. A judge is going to agree that Tina's father should be the executor of the estate at which point he is going to gain possession of Tina's body and all of her possessions. However, Gabe is going to apparently make it difficult for the family to figure out what possessions of Tina's that he still has and what he's going and ultimately make it difficult for the family to get back things as simple as yearbooks and and private possessions that belong to Tina because again, her family's looking at it as she was our daughter, sister, whatever it may be, for 23 years. She was your wife for 11 days. You shouldn't have a right to keep all of her stuff. And I know at one point, too, that Gabe demanded after 
her burial or something like that that the family give her back the engagement and wedding ring so again this guy at least from a public relations standpoint does not come across as as a guy who's concerned about the the right things here or doing things right so that same uh, alabama attorney general is going to listen to tina's family and agree that what happened in australia was a, a extreme miscarriage of justice and that he should face charges here they develop a plan to charge gabe with tina's murder by making the claim that because they believe this was a first degree premeditated murder they have the family stating that tina that that Gabe pushed Tina into the scuba diving stuff and they believe that he did that as a way to get her into a position where he had control and power and more knowledge of the situation and that he planned this all out to include the emails to the uh, dive operation that's going to tell him that Tina should not even attempt this dive and that this was all part of an elaborate plan, including asking uh, Tina to increase her life insurance by fivefold and make her make Gabe the sole beneficiary of this life insurance policy. Now, again, this is all according to Tina's father, and it hasn't been verified. But when they're looking at this big picture, they're starting to see a, a an image appear of Gabe planning to kill his wife in Australia on their honeymoon, but because some of this can be proven to have occurred in Alabama, the Attorney General believes that he's got a good case for a first-degree premeditated murder and a kidnapping charge against Gabe. So while Gabe is serving time in the Australian prison, they are going to request Gabe to be returned to the U.S. upon his release so that he can face these charges. Now, Australia is going to say they refuse to return Gabe to the U.S. and cooperate with any American investigation unless the death penalty is taken off the table because Alabama has the death penalty and this is a capital murder case being it's a, a first-degree premeditated murder. So although the Alabama Attorney General is not going to like the fact that the Australian government is telling him how to run his investigation and his charges. In fact, he's going to actually come out and say that if an Australian woman was killed in Alabama, Alabama wouldn't hesitate to send any and all information to the Australian government and would not tell them how to run their criminal justice system, which is a little ironic considering he's saying that they're criminal system justice system is inadequate so he needs to bring his own charges but in all honesty it really seems like it was so australia will agree to cooperate as long as the death penalty is off the table alabama removes removes the death penalty so alabama goes forward with a with a grand jury now again just like the coronial inquest a grand jury does not have any defense so the Attorney General gets to present all the evidence they have at that time, which a lot of that doesn't have to be direct evidence with key witnesses present. 
they just basically have to lay out the case again, that they have against Gabe, and then the grand jury can choose to vote to indict or vote to not indict. And in this case, they vote to indict in October of 2010. Gabe's going to be released on November 10th, that following month from his 18-month sentence. And he's going to be held in Australia until November 25th because Australia is still worried that the U.S. is going to try him on a capital murder case. So they have to get it in writing saying that they are not going to, he's not going to face the death penalty. Once everything is taken care of between the governments, he will be released on November 25th back to the United States where he's immediately arrested for the first degree murder and kidnapping of Tina Watson. In July of 2011, the circuit court sets a trial date of February 13th, 2012, and Gabe's released on bond. Unfortunately, between the July 2011 and the trial date, a lot of things fell apart for this prosecution. And I'll just kind of break it down. There's stuff that happened here in America, and there's stuff that happened in Australia that kind of, well, we'll just go over it. So... Uh, after believing he had a solid case, uh, this Attorney General King found his case falling apart. They did have a dive expert who was willing to testify, and must have testified during the grand jury, that Gabe should have been able to bring Teen up during her dive emergency. And this is based on the fact that this dive expert believed that they were both they're 26 years old, that they appeared to be healthy, and that he was given information that Gabe had done 55 dives and was a, a certified rescue diver. So just based on that information alone, at surface level, this dive expert is saying there's no reason this guy should not have been able to bring Tina up to the surface. However, he would later find out that Gabe's 55 dives were not done in open water. They were done in pools or quarries or lakes where there is no current. And that instead of taking the normal four-day rescue diver course, Gabe had taken a two-day rescue diver course so the expert was no longer willing to testify that he didn't that he believed Gabe should have been able to do this as he now felt that Gabe was actually inadequate to even dive that site himself let alone be a dive buddy to Tina this the same dive expert also found out that Tina had a complicated medical history to include having heart surgery a few years prior to this to correct an irregular heart rhythm and this was when you apply for a dive certification, you have to go through a uh, actual physical, and you're supposed to get clearance from all heart-related, lung-related issues that could come up during a dive. And somehow Tina was able to mark that she did not have any heart issues when she did this dive application. Now again, we're basing this all on the fact that Tina was a willing and and happy participant participant about this dive certification we don't know if this dive application was even completed by tina or i'm just playing conspiracy theorist here but it's possible that gabe being the quote-unquote expert diver may have just told tina i'll just take care of this stuff you don't worry about it so we don't know that i don't have any proof of that i'm just saying it seems weird that somebody with no dive experience and a known heart issue is going to voluntarily bypass that information uh, when it comes to her dive application. 
then it's going to come to light that this dive company didn't really look into Gabe's certifications. They just took him at his word that he was this quote unquote experienced diver with a rescue diver certification. So the dive company is going to look at him as somebody that can not only dive without an instructor himself, but that is a capable dive buddy for uh, Tina Watson. Now, in reality, the dive company should have looked at his certifications closer and realized he did not have any open water dives in an environment such as the one he is going to find on this dive site. And the dive operation themselves should have been saying, no, not only does Tina need a certified dive instructor to go with her, you're going to need one as well. And that had that happened, there's a good chance we wouldn't be in this situation. So while all this is going on, a lot of stuff is coming to light with what's going on in Queensland. So at the time of the prosecutions in Queensland, the prosecutors in the state of Queensland were averaging somewhere around 79 cases a year. Now, when I read that, I thought, it doesn't sound like too many, but you have to realize most of these are going to be high felony level cases. And I've, they did quickly compare it to that other states in the area, so New South Wales, Victoria, uh, different, different states in Australia, their prosecutors were only handling on average 27 cases. So they're handling almost three times as many cases, which means it's three times the workload of what other prosecutors in other states are handling. At this time too, the Queensland court system's bogged down with a very long and expensive case of a doctor, there's a Dr. Giant Patel, or Jayant Patel. This doctor was accused of malpractice that led to the deaths of dozens, if not hundreds of patients in a major hospital in Queensland. So they've got this lengthy and expensive trial going on at the same time they're looking at potentially having to prosecute this international sensation of a case which was this this honeymoon uh, killing case so it's believed by some experts that the decision to accept the plea deal saved Queensland prosecutor's office about two million dollars by not having a trial that and police investigators came out and said that they're the prosecutor's office put together a poorly written summary of facts and this is what was sent to the judge that's put in charge of adjudicating the plea deal and this infuriated police because it painted a picture of a much more accidental death that matched the manslaughter charge than what their lengthy and exhaustive investigation had shown so basically somebody in the prosecutor's office put together a summary of facts that only matched parts of the investigation that pointed towards this being a tragic accident and a negligence or negligent move on the part of of Gabe and left out much of the conflicting statements that he made his actions afterwards all the stuff that they put their hard work and investigation into and the videos uh, of the divers and whatnot none of that was included so this judge who's looking at it to, to green light this plea deal is looking at a case that's much different than what the police actually put together. And now when it comes to the Alabama trial, again, the, the attorney general went into this with all gun smoking, thinking he's got this, this killer case. When they reached out to Australia, who had agreed to cooperate with them 
when the death penalty was removed, they find out that the Queensland Prosecutor's Office is not going to provide them with a lot of key witnesses for financial reasons. They just can't afford to pay to fly these scientists and, and officers and whatnot over to Alabama for this trial. Now, I don't understand why Alabama couldn't pay for it. Maybe there was other things that they couldn't have, you know, be missing the, the work power that these people were provided or providing um, at the same time. So maybe it was something that Alabama couldn't supplement with just money alone. But ultimately, because these witnesses are not going to be able to come over, the defense is not going to be able to question these witnesses, which means any evidence that they would have presented on is now inadmissible. So all of the videos the police did with the divers, a lot of the interviews that they did, all of this kind of stuff is now going to be ruled inadmissible for this murder trial. Even the email that Gabe sent to the dive company before the honeymoon was deemed to be inadmissible because it was discovered by an investigator that could not be a witness in the trial. Now, it did make me wonder if things would be different now with in the post-COVID era when we do so many more things over a video conference and, and that type of thing, if, if there could have been some type of workaround in place for uh, these witnesses to testify from Australia into the courtroom. And the final blow, I guess, to the investigation was that the judge refused to allow Tina's father's testimony to enter into court. Now, this might have been because of hearsay rules where because the defense can't cross-examine Tina, it's not allowed. However, I have seen other cases where because the victim is deceased and can't be cross-examined, that here, direct evidence hearsay is allowed, but that did not seem to be the case with, with this. So with no solid motive, the dive experts are no longer on their side, and most of the statements from the investigation, which includes the videos, are all admiss inadmissible. The judge looked at the case itself and, and simply stated there was not enough evidence to send this case to a jury. The prosecutor was absolutely shocked by this because this was the first time in 41 years of prosecution that the judge had refused a case to the jury. I think a lot of people would ask what harm could come from sending this case to a jury. That's what our judicial system does. But I'm guessing from the judge's standpoint, he's looking at and saying almost there's almost no evidence of this, so I'm not going to waste people's time. And this is actually going to upset both families because Tina's family of course wants justice so they want to see this go to a jury and they want Gabe to be found guilty and Gabe's family actually wants us to go to a jury and for him to be completely exonerated by the jury so that there's no further questions or allegations but by the judge not allowing it to go to the jury neither family is getting the closure that they want but now ultimately Gabe is not going to be able to be charged with anything in America related to this crime unless blaring new evidence is made available which as we're approaching 20 years from the incident itself I don't think that is going to happen so as we kind of break this all down I guess this is one of those cases where it just depends on who you think is telling the truth how much you want to believe of one side's argument or the other 
For people that support Gabe, they state that there is zero evidence that he actually did anything wrong here. And to be honest, as I'm researching this case, I don't know if this is more of a case of him thinking he was a better scuba diver than he actually was. I mean, right down to the point that he didn't even know how to put the batteries in his dive watch, but he wanted to come across as this super diver and that just his raw arrogance and bravado put his wife into a situation where she ultimately died as a result of that. And it just really is a terrible tragedy and, and something he has to live with from that viewpoint or if this was a cold calculated murder in which he got her into a environment and situation in which it's very easy to make something look like an accident or at least raise too many questions to prove anything and did he commit a murder that he was ultimately basically able to get away with minus the 18 months he did in australia for for the manslaughter plea so it's one of those cases that leaves a lot of people divided. Some err on one side, some err on the other, and then some people are still left in the middle undecided. So hopefully this presentation of the case allows you to arrive at your own conclusion and feel free to post that conclusion or email it to me and I can talk about it in a future episode, I guess, if, uh, if I get a bunch of feedback. Ultimately, I hope to one day have a working web page up i'm still waiting for google to get my web page up and going here but hopefully someday i'll be able to do cases like this and put polls up and have people put their opinion on there whether gabe's a murderer whether he's a masculine guy who just got in over his head and, and his wife paid the price or whether you think it's somewhere in between but that is it for the case of Tina Watson and the honeymoon scuba diving murder slash tragedy slash accident slash anything else you want to add there. Stay tuned for future episodes. We'll be going back to American episodes that occur somewhere other than flyover country for the next few episodes until we hit episode 15. Um, again, thank you so much for the support and for the downloads, the fact that I'm at Almost 200 downloads a weekend is, is something I'm still trying to wrap my head around. And just please keep spreading the, the word. Tell your other friends who listen to True Crime to check out the podcast. And thanks for sticking with me through this first week as I learned what I could learn in regards to putting these things together and presenting them and editing them and all that kind of stuff. So uh, appreciate it, guys. I hope you guys all have a great day. And I'll talk to you later. Bye.